What do you have to give to belong? How can community be both inclusive and exclusive? In his story, Temple Dews, Carrie Gitter explores what builds a community and how a community can sometimes fail at its intended purpose. Welcome to episode 8 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Carrie Gitter, as read by David Mika Streifer. Stuart Silverman was behind on his Temple Dews. Georgia spotted him in his cherry-red Lexus IS as she stood outside Congregation Sons of Israel after a September Sunday morning spent helping out in the religious school. His appearance was shock enough. Lately, Stuart had seemed to be avoiding the small reform synagogue like the plague. But now she saw him rolling down his window and waving her over with a suntanned, gray-haired arm. Weaving among the giddy children scurrying to their parents' vehicles, Georgia shuffled with her bad right foot toward Stuart's luxury sedan and thought of all the years she'd known him. God, had it really been two decades since their own kids, her son Cameron, and his daughter Leah, entered Hebrew school together at age seven? She remembered those long-ago halcyon days when the glowing Silvermans would show up at Friday night services, beached bronzed Stuart, flush from his jewelry pawn shop and flanked by his regal Korean wife, Min Hee, and royal little Leah. But things had changed. There had been a drop in the gem trade due to the Great Recession, and an ill-fated attempt to set Min Hee up at an It's Greek to Me restaurant franchise in nearby Lodi, and Stewart was allegedly broke. Too broke, he claimed, to pay his $1,500 annual temple membership dues. How are you, Georgia? He called out the car window with the grim amiability of a man on an embarrassing errand. I'm good, she said, hobbling up to the Lexus. What are you doing here? A brief word on Georgia's bluntness. Given Stuart's widely known payment problems, secrets spread fast at Sons of Israel. The question, what are you doing, might have sounded loaded or even downright accusatory, coming from any other congregant. But those who knew Georgia well, as Stuart did, would have heard it differently. Thanks, perhaps, to her father, a strapping hardwood floor man from the Texas backwoods, and her mother, a hard-nosed Brooklyn Italian-American, no, Georgia wasn't born Jewish. She was direct to a fault and harbored no hidden agendas. When she wanted to know what you were doing here, she just asked, without guile or malice, and so she got an answer. I figured I could catch you, Stewart said. I saw on the calendar it was the first day of Sunday school. Listen, I've got all your messages. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be pushy, but, you know, I'm in charge of membership this year. No, I get it. You're just doing your job. I wanted to talk in person, though. I'm going to be honest with you, he shrugged. I'm hard up. He had first pleaded financial hardship to her over the summer, as the August 1st dues deadline rolled by. But now she sensed a finality in his tone. I'm... Sorry to hear that. I've been waiting to get in touch with you, because I thought I might be able to get my, uh, stuff together. Here, outside the synagogue, he said stuff instead of shit. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I'm straight up strapped for cash. I can't afford those dues right now. Okay. I mean, on top of everything, Leah's student loans are killing me. She had a great time in Boston, but I'll tell you, in hindsight, Rutgers is looking pretty good to me right now. Well, that was a worthwhile investment, Georgia assured him. Yeah, Stewart said without confidence. But who am I to talk? You sent Cameron to NYU. 
Zooming out, Georgia saw two middle-aged Jewish parents on a sunny street in the square-mile suburban upper-middle-class town of River Hill, New Jersey, commiserating over having sent their precious only children to big-city dream universities instead of a far less expensive state school. The image was unsavory, so she got back to business. So then, if you can't afford your membership, what were you planning on doing for the high holidays? She asked. Stewart stuck his head farther out the window. That's what I got to talk to you about. Rosh Hashanah's in a couple of weeks. I know, I know, and unless I win a scratch-off tomorrow, I'm not going to be a member of the temple by then. So can I uh, just buy holiday tickets this year? Honestly, we're all sold out of non-member tickets, Stuart. Georgia's bluntness. The holidays are two weeks away. But then, just as typically an attempted accommodation. How many do you need? Four. Me, Min, Leah, and my sister. How much? Adult high holiday tickets are 300 per person. 300? You gotta be kidding. Since when? They used to be half that. The board voted to raise the price this year. We need to renovate the Holy Ark. Jesus Christ, he muttered, but Georgia pretended not to hear him or see his reddening cheeks. Look, four tickets are going to cost you 1200 she continued in her most pragmatic voice. You might as well just renew your family membership for an extra three. That'll guarantee you guys a place, but I told you, I can't afford that, Stuart cut in, slicing her diplomatic words like a sharp Sabbath knife through softest challah. I can't afford 1500 and I can't afford 1200 So my family's going to miss high holiday services? Jesus Christ. And with this second invocation of that other Jew with dues issues, he did something that astounded Georgia. He drew his head with its close-cropped military-style salt-and-pepper hair. She knew he'd been in the army. Had he served in Vietnam? Back into the car and drooped it until his forehead came to rest on the steering wheel. A grand, pathetic gesture of a kind rarely made or seen in public by civilized, small-town grown-ups. The gesture of a man shut out of the high holidays. That was mortifying. Peeking around to see if any other sons or daughters of Israel were witnessing the bizarre scene, Georgia found to her relief that all the Hebrew school parents had departed with their kids. Only poor Charlie waited on the corner for his chronically late dad, who had him on weekends. She looked back at the top of Stuart's recumbent, motionless head. Stuart? Another second of painful silence. Then, like an awakened golem, he shot up in his seat and turned to her with desperate eyes. You think you can help me out, Georgia? Still startled by his open show of distress, she heard herself mumbling, What do you mean? I know it's short notice. I know Rosh Hashanah's in two weeks. I know I've, uh handled all this badly. I swear to you, I don't have the money right now for temple dues, for high holiday tickets, for anything but my goddamn bills. He indicated a pile of torn open envelopes bound with a rubber band on the passenger seat. Why was he carrying his bills around? But I gotta bring my family for the holidays. I gotta. It's very important. It's spiritual. You understand? No, yeah, I know how you must feel. So you can work something out? Um, well... Clarity was returning to her now, possible plans of action emerging from the surreally uncomfortable haze of a few moments ago. We do, you know, offer financial assistance with dues when there's a need. Great, I thought so. But that's a process. Okay. This is very last minute. 
I'd have to talk to the board. Our next meeting's Wednesday. Hey, whatever you gotta do, Georgia, I'm broke. I'm not ashamed. I don't care who knows it, but I won't always be broke. And everybody on that board knows I'm loyal to this congregation, and I'll pay my way for the rest of my life. Or at least till I move to Florida. <laughs> but seriously, this is a uh, temporary rough patch, and I just want to get my family here for the big days. I understand. It's just not my decision alone, so I can't make any promises. Stuart winked at her. Come on, you'll work your magic. And Georgia knew that his relieved smile, such a contrast from the tragic mask of minutes earlier, was because he'd enlisted her, not just anyone, in his cause. She was, after all, the congregant whom Rabbi Shek had once singled out from the bima as the linchpin of the synagogue. For her tireless volunteering and tenacious efficiency, it was best to have God on your side, he'd quipped, but having Georgia was a close second. She now saw in Stuart's relaxed face a firm belief that with her on this case, he would surely be sitting in a pew alongside his family in two weeks' time, listening to the shofar herald a sweet new year that would put him back in the black. He looked ready to kiss her hand. Georgia said she'd do her best to get the Silvermans into high holiday services, and Stuart showered her with thanks before speeding off in his Lexus toward the family's lavish residence. Drowsy in the warm September air and pained to the bone spur in her right heel, she limped back to the now-empty temple to collect her things. She had to go home, make lunch for herself, and sigh her husband, and, with any luck, take a nap. At 9.30 that Sunday night, Georgia sat at the desk in her home office, on the phone with Dr. Bernie Gelb, DDS, the current president of Congregation Sons of Israel. The office had been built onto the house back when Georgia was at the height of running her own small print advertising business, Cam Ads, named for her son Cameron. Twenty years ago, in 1993, she and Cy had together left the Manhattan ad agency where they'd met and fallen in love taking all their loyal clients with them, to form the two-person company. She was 45 then, he was 60, second marriages for both, and young Cameron was six, born a year after their union. In 1987, as Cy eased into semi-retirement, she ran the business, placing real estate and help-wanted ads in myriad tri-state area newspapers from the house, where she greeted Cameron each day when he came home from school. No image could more perfectly symbolize Georgia's dichotomous soul than that of getting off the phone with a New York Times advertising representative and rising to make her son a snack. Cam ads thrived for years, but like Stuart Silverman's jewelry pawn shop and millions of other American enterprises, couldn't survive the economic crisis of 2008. Clients axed their advertising budgets and print was dying anyway. Beleaguered by this decline and Cameron's NYU tuition and the costs of being a New Jersey homeowner, Georgia engaged a lawyer, declared Cam Ads bankrupt, and, with characteristic resourcefulness, earned a real estate license. A new career at age 60, starting over. Now, five years later, with Cy 80 and fully retired, their savings depleted, and retirement as distant a prospect as death, Georgia spent her days on the road, driving homeowners around Bergen County for Roth Realty. She did enjoy the work, though, fond as she was of houses, people, and keeping busy. Her spare time was dedicated to the synagogue. The home office often sat empty. Tonight, however, she sat in it, 
with the window air conditioner on full blast, her favorite setting, but still not loud enough to drown out the sound of Cy's Yankees game from the living room. The sound actually came not from the television, but from a portable stereo, since Cy watched Yankees games on mute while listening to them on the radio. He preferred the sonorous-voiced WFAN announcer John Sterling, a controversial figure once called a clown in the pages of the New York Post, to the TV commentators. Each season, Cy watched slash listened to almost all of his beloved team's 162 games, so the din of baseball filled the house for half of every year. Georgia sometimes found herself hating the sport and wishing for John Sterling's untimely death. But at this moment, both the air conditioning and the play-by-play were background noise to Temple President Bernie Gelb's reedy sneer on the phone. Georgia, come on. Stuart Silverman isn't broke. He says he is. With that house, that Lexus. People with big houses and nice cars can still be broke, Bernie. And he's got that great business. All those people trading in there for stunkin' a jewelry. His business hasn't been doing well, apparently. And he bought Min He, that Greek-to-me restaurant in Lodi. Which was super smart. That woman couldn't make a sandwich, let alone run a restaurant. Why would you say that? Bottom line, he said, ignoring her. This is all bullshit. He's telling you stories. Why would Stewart say he has no money if he does? It's embarrassing. You gotta have shame to be embarrassed. Bernie. It's simple. He's crying poor because he doesn't want to pay his dues. He's a deadbeat. Look who we're talking about here. All those years Leo was in Hebrew school and he was loaded, it was still like pulling teeth. Georgia wondered if the dentist's dental analogy was deliberate. Getting him to pay on time, right? And now that his kid's grown up and he and his family never show their faces at shul, he wants to slide into high holiday services once a year for free. So you think Stewart's trying to con us? Yeah, I do. You know... Always assuming the worst about the congregants probably isn't the best thing for the president of a You're too soft, Georgia. My job is keeping sons of Israel afloat. It's not making sure every freeloader, who really has plenty of dough, by the way, gets a free pass to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's a bad pre- precedent. Right, Bernie said. Fortunately for him, dental skill and business acumen have zero correlation with vocabulary size. His limited lexicon and his malapropisms were a frequent source of amusement at board meetings. But he could laugh at himself, too, for he was such an unequivocal success in life. Indeed, Bernie had enacted a particular northeastern Jewish version of the American dream. Plebeian Bronx upbringing with first-generation parents, bachelor's cum laude from Delaware, DDS from Tufts, marriage to a pretty blonde Jewish nursing student, Lucrative family dental practice in his home borough, expansive house up in the affluent hills section of River Hill, New Jersey, three kids, finance, law, and medicine, sizable donations to the synagogue, and now, as a crowning honor at 61, a two-year term as its president. Hardworking, generous, crass, wise-cracking Dr. Gelb had made it, and he didn't see why anyone else shouldn't. For Stuart Silverman, a peer of his in every outward sense, to be claiming penury and groveling for high holiday admission was nothing less than an affront to Bernie's very being. So what do you want to do, Georgia asked, divining his answer before he said it. Tell him no. Tell Stuart he pays his dues or buys tickets or his family's not coming to holiday services this year. If you don't want to tell him, I will. 
It'll be a pleasure. Well, I promised him I'd discuss it with the board on Wednesday. Discuss what? Oh, you mean Stewart is a financial aid case? Bernie's phlegmy horse laugh. That's for people who really need it. And there aren't many around here. Besides, that's a whole involved thing. Rosh Hashanah's in ten days. I'm still going to bring it up at the meeting. I told him I would. Go ahead, Georgia. But I don't see why a mensch like you is jumping through hoops for a pisher like Stuart Silverman. You're the best, but you've got to learn to pick your battles. Battles. A minute later, with Bernie's voice and its mockery of Stuart's plight gone, in favor of the comparatively blessed sound of the AC and the Yankees, Georgia sat staring at her office wall, at two tokens of her greatest personal battles. No, battles wasn't the right word at all, with its negative connotation. These were victories, triumphs. One of the tokens on the wall was a blown-up photo portrait of cherubic-cheeked fourth-grade Cameron, who rested his chin on his hand in front of a studio cloudscape, the cherished only son, her ultimate accomplishment, center of her universe, no less true for being a cliché. Where was he on this Sunday night? Didn't he have a stand-up gig? Yes, and it was 10 o'clock, so he was probably on stage this very second in some dingy hole in downtown Manhattan, telling jokes about River Hill and Jews and his parents. You raise them with love so they can mock you with impunity. But she was proud. Beside the picture of Cameron hung her framed Stargeur, Certificate of Conversion to Judaism, Dated July 2nd, 1995, and signed by Rabbi Sheck, Lou Kramer, the then president of Sons of Israel, and, of all people, Bernie Gelb. Gazing at this second emblem of achievement, she flashed back movie style to the unlikely path that had led to it. It took her 37 years from a Jewless, vaguely Christian childhood in California through a move to New York and a first marriage to a bohemian atheistic cab driver for her to wed Cy Beller, an East Coast Jew to the bone, and therefore become intimate with the chosen faith. Through Cy's family and her own son's upbringing, they agreed to raise Cameron Jewish because Cy cared and she didn't. She discovered the haunting beauty of the synagogue music, the joyous holiday celebrations of escape from persecution, and the religion's refreshing focus on the here and now, rather than a pay-later afterlife. By the time Cameron started Hebrew school in 1994, the seduction was complete, with no urging from Sai, whose strong Jewishness was cultural and not devout. She enrolled in a six-month reform conversion class with Rabbi Sheck, and then, one hot July day, stepped naked into the cool waters of the mikveh, the ritual bath, to become a Jew. Not just a Jew! but a super-Jew, as Sai liked to call her, referring to her regular attendance at weekly services, her labors on the temple board, and her ceaseless activities on behalf of the institution. Sometimes, as Georgia ran out the door to buy yet another last-minute loaf of challah that someone else had forgotten to secure for the post-service oneg, Sai wished she'd converted with a little less zeal. If you saw the Bellers today... Knowing only that they were an interfaith couple, you'd no doubt guess he, not she, was the goy. Georgia now read the prayer printed across the top of her conversion certificate, the Holy Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. How had she gone from the sanctity of that day 18 years ago to the pettiness of this one? Tonight, 
all that Judaism meant to her, ritual, community, tzedakah, charity, literally justice, was obscured in her mind by Stuart's desperate high holiday haggling and Bernie's cynical derision of him. For an instant, the entire affair struck her as a grotesque farce, temple dues, holiday tickets, paying thousands of dollars for permission to pray to God. Georgia! Sai called from the living room, mercifully severing this sequence of thought. Yeah, she yelled over the office air conditioning. No reply. She knew Sai was probably in there shaking his head and grumbling to himself, as was his wont when he summoned her from another part of the house and she didn't come immediately. This gratuitous impatience in an otherwise good-natured man was the product of 80 years in which he'd never lived without a woman to attend to him. First his mother, 1933 to 1956, then his first wife, 1956 to 1978, his mother again, 1978 to 1986, and now Georgia, 1986 until. You called me, she said, entering the living room where she found Sai in his favorite armchair, bent over and patting a bloody spot on his Bermuda shorts-clad right leg. What happened? He gave her an annoyed look, as if she should somehow have known. I got up to go to the bathroom, and the coffee table slashed my leg. Georgia imagined the anthropomorphized piece of furniture stabbing her husband with a tiny knife. It hurts. The table's too close to my chair. Let me see. It doesn't look too bad. I'll clean it. Once she'd fetched the alcohol and a cotton ball from the bathroom and begun to disinfect the cut, she told Sai about her phone call with Bernie. Bernie's tactless, but I'm with him on this one, was his swift response. If Stewart can't get his act together two weeks before the high holidays, his family shouldn't be able to go. Why give the guy special treatment? He's trying to take advantage of your benevolence. Georgia nodded. As she dabbed at the shallow wound, it occurred to her out of nowhere that another day of her life had been consumed by the needs, resentments, and vulnerabilities of men. So Stuart's having difficulties at the moment, and we don't have time to go through a financial aid process with him before Rosh Hashanah next week. But since he's a longtime congregant and member of our community, I suggest we just give the Silvermans four high holiday tickets now and work out some kind of payment plan once the holidays are over. Thus concluded George's appeal to the board of Sons of Israel at the end of its Wednesday evening meeting. Over the past three days, as she'd gone about her weekly routine, showing clients $800,000 Bergen County houses and typing up the Temple newsletter and watching rented movies late at night with Cy, her reluctant agreement to plead Stewart's case had grown into a firm resolve. With no idea why, she'd begun to feel weirdly, ridiculously, as if the legitimacy of the Hebraic religion itself hinged on whether or not his family would be admitted to the congregation's holiday services. The nine board officers in attendance, there were five no-shows, which Georgia hoped would make her job of persuasion easier, sat around a long plastic table in the synagogue's drab, fluorescent-lit basement social hall. In front of them were styrofoam cups containing coffee dregs and paper plates strewn with crumbs, from the dry Entenmann's pound cake provided by Karen Lubitz, who invariably brought the worst refreshments. Bernie piped up. To be frank, I don't think we should even be devoting time to this. Bernie, we all know how you feel, Georgia interrupted. Let's hear some other opinions. She knew whoever spoke first would set the tone for the debate, and it would certainly be a debate. 
No discussion on the board ever wasn't. From which Brooklyn tourist tribe to contract with, down to who would carry Cantor Rosenfeld's glass of water to the Bima on Friday nights. Unfortunately for George's cause, it was Ira Hilberg, the angular retired math professor who opened his mouth first. I barely know Stuart Silverman, and I have no personal stake in this matter, he said with pedantic poise. But to advance him four high holiday passes now, that just seems unfair. Both to everyone who's paid their dues or bought tickets on time, and to those who've shown us in a responsible, timely fashion that they're financially unable. Solemn nods. Next came the lilting sing-song of Pam Fish, the frizzy-haired ex-hippie who'd recently instituted monthly summer yoga sessions on Sons of Israel's lawn. She smiled at Georgia. I understand you and Stuart are close. We're not really close. Our kids went to Hebrew school together. There's still a strong connection. And you're so sweet, Georgia, forever doing for others. But, like Iris said, when we start, um, making unfair exceptions... Pam feared confrontation too much to finish her sentence. So Benjamin Miller, a 40-something Bank of America VP in a smooth suit, interceded to deal the death blow. This place survives on dues, he said, in a sturdy, reasonable businessman's timber that often expressed the consensus of the assembly. And congregants who want to join us on the holidays have a responsibility to pay. The hard fact is, Stuart hasn't contributed much time or energy here either. So I don't see a compelling reason to undermine our basic sustainability structure for him. Georgia suddenly hated them all. These predictable types, this motley crew of moral weaklings, sustainability structure. It was their classic domino dance. One biased board member, in this case Ira, who thought Stuart crude, employed a little rhetoric, and the rest fell in line. Like that Freud book Cameron had read in college and described to her about how groups bring out the worst in people, why had she even dreamed they'd show some Jewish menschlichkeit and give Stuart a break? Her mistake was that she'd failed to anticipate the extent of their antipathy to the jewelry pawnbroker, who, in truth, was not the most likable guy. He hadn't done a damn thing for any of them or for the shul. So what did they care if he was broke and his spoiled wife and daughter got locked out of the high holidays? And yet, Georgia made one last-ditched effort. The thing for me is, she stopped and tried again, I mean, I don't want to sound highfalutin here, but... Refusing to let someone, someone we all know, come here and pray with his family on the most important days. Is that really who we are as a, is that how we practice our, it doesn't seem right. She glanced around for any signs of solidarity, but all that met her plea was awkward silence. At last, Bernie said, thanks, Georgia. All right, let's vote. Give Stuart the four tickets now and figure out payment later, yes or no. Then he added, and keep in mind, we don't actually know what Stuart's real financial situation is, or if we'll ever see money from him for this. Bernie, Georgia said, well, we don't. The final tally was six to two, with all voting no, except Karen Lubitz, who always abstained, Stanislav Markovich, a shy, widowed Russian emigre given to eyeing Georgia with admiration, and Georgia herself. She was obviously not amazed. Ever since Stuart had begged her for help on Sunday, part of her had foreseen this outcome. 
the man's low repute, the temple's perennial fiscal straits, the personalities of the board, the general unwillingness of humans to cut other humans slack. All these factors had signaled that the Silvermans wouldn't, in the end, be granted access to the high holidays. Even so, she was disappointed. In the small-mindedness of her fellow officers as much as her own inability to make them see the compassionate light. Outside, after the meeting, Bernie's thick, clammy hand emerged from the nippy night to touch George's arm as she opened her car. You did your best for Stuart, he said. You can tell him that at least. Thank you, Bernie. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. Hey, what can you do? The board has spoken. He winked and laughed. That's almost like a verdict from God himself. She rolled her eyes, which Bernie couldn't see in the darkness. His joke didn't really make sense, and he was a creep. The house was empty when Georgia got back at 10.30. Cy was at his weekly card game, playing Texas Hold'em with a group of older Jewish men in the rec room of a high-rise in neighboring Fort Lee. She hobbled into her office, where she'd left the AC running, and signed on to America Online. Cameron had repeatedly explained that her AOL account was redundant now that she also had a high-speed internet connection, but she kept paying for it anyway out of habit and confusion. "'You've got mail!' said the voice, an old friend, and up popped a new message from silvermangems at gmail.com, crafted with Stuart's poignant grammar and syntax. Subject, thanks, four exclamation points. Georgia, hope tonight's board meeting went well. Thank you again from bottom of heart for going bat for me. My family know we'll be at Holy Days this year thanks to you. It's funny, people forget what Jewish is all about, but never you, Georgia. Let me know how tonight went. Thanks so much. Exclamation points. S.S. Georgia did not respond to Stewart's email that night or to its anxious follow-up 48 hours later. She passed the rest of the week in a strange private limbo. She felt as if she were floating. Inside her, an unnameable spiritual feeling emergent over the last several days crystallized. On Saturday, the Sabbath, she arrived serenely at a resolution that surprised even her and when it became known, stunned the membership of Sons of Israel. She had decided to make a sacrifice to perform an act of radical tzedakah for Stuart. With the whole congregation aligned against him, it was, she'd realized, the only way. Her unprecedented plan? To give her own family's three high holiday tickets to the Silvermans. Yes, she would stay home with Sai and Cameron on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur this year, while Stuart, Minhi, and Leah went to temple and worshipped in their stead. No sooner did this outrageous news spread than a disbelieving Bernie Gelb phoned, frantic to dissuade her, as did an appalled Rabbi Sheck. For Georgia, a prominent lay leader, to remove herself from the holiday observances like this amounted to nothing less than a shocking public protest of the shul and its policies, they cried. But she replied calmly that after the board's Wednesday ruling, her own family's absence was simply the sole means left to ensure the Silverman's attendance at services, her prime concern. No ill will intended. Why, both men asked, did she care so much about the Silverman's all of a sudden? That, of course, was the big question, the one whose ancient, divine answer had come to her this weekend, but couldn't be put into words. So she offered them a vague response about needing to keep her promise to Stuart. Oddly unfazed by Bernie's and the rabbi's rebukes, Georgia brought Stuart the three tickets in person on Monday. Clutching the pieces of paper as if they were branches on the tree of life, 
He embraced her in tears on his palatial front porch and gave her cheek a soft, reverent kiss of gratitude. There was not, alas, a fourth pass for his sister. But he and his wife and daughter, the Kor clan, would now be present to greet God on the days of awe after all, free of charge. Amen. As for George's tribe, Sai, ever eager to escape long, lethargic days in synagogue, and Cameron, an ardent young atheist, were frankly glad not to have to sit through the sacred rites this year. Still, they remained as astonished and bewildered as everyone by their wife and mother's extraordinary sacrificial gesture. And Georgia, aware she would soon face the full community's reaction to that gesture, spent the high holidays of 2013 praying alone at home, more thankful for and secure in her Jewish faith than at any time since her life-altering conversion nearly two decades before. Published in November of 2014, Carrie Gitter is a playwright and screenwriter. His play, The Sabbath Girl, ran off-Broadway at 59E59 Theaters in 2020, following his premiere at Penguin Rep Theater in Stony Point, New York in 2019. His work has received many awards, commissions, and recognition. His dramatic work has been published in anthologies from Smith & Krauss and Applause Books, and his fiction has appeared in JewishFiction.net, Newton Literary, and the Jewish Literary Journal. Carrie holds a BFA and MA from NYU. You can find more on him at his website, carriegitter.com. Let's hear from him now. So uh, when did you write this story, and uh, what was the inspiration going on in your life? What caused you to want to write this story? Um, I believe I wrote it in um, 2014, um, either 2014 or 2015. Um, and uh, the inspiration really was, um was my mother who uh converted to Judaism when I was uh a kid uh, my father uh, was Jewish uh, my mother wasn't but converted and became very very involved in um a reform synagogue in New Jersey um that we attended she was president of the synagogue uh, she was served on the board for many years and she would kind of you know just offhandedly tell me and my dad stories about what was going on, um, conflicts on the board, um, things that congregants needed help with, whatever, uh, which she, you know, told us in confidence, but of course being a writer, I then <laughs> wrote about yeah. them. Um, so yeah, this story was based kind of indirectly on, um, on a real life story that, I heard from my mom that she'd kind of been in the middle of regarding um, someone who had an issue paying their uh, paying their membership dues at the synagogue and and, and had a problem getting into the high holidays uh, as a result. Interesting. Um, let's see. You said your mother converted when you were already born, or is it before you're born, after you're born? She converted uh, actually when I was seven. So she mm-hmm. had been raised kind of vaguely Christian, but didn't really have a strong religious religious identity. But my father um, had grown up Jewish, and the decision had been made to raise me Jewish because it was something that he cared about. And I guess just by virtue of being introduced to the rituals and uh, the holidays and uh, all of that um, through him, my mother just kind of 
took a liking to Judaism and decided to convert. So she took a year-long conversion class when yeah. I was about six and then uh, converted when I was seven. And then, ironically, you know, she was the one who then became super involved, would go to services weekly and um, volunteered all the time and joined the board. And my dad, you know, was, was – uh, Felt very strongly Jewish in terms of his identity, but but was far less involved in the synagogue or going mm-hmm. to the synagogue, um, which I guess maybe isn't so unusual. Like a convert gets excited and and dives in. Um, so that was uh, so that was my my mom's experience. And then uh, forgive my ignorance with reform the reform ideology. You did not need to convert, right? You're uh, it's patrilineal as well. Is that true? Yes. Yes. So the, according to the Reform uh, uh, tradition, uh, I, I count as being Jewish, although other other uh, denominations, you know, don't don't right. have that same standard. Yeah. I think that would open up questions in terms of you said your mother was the convert and um, then was more involved. Do you have a and it seems that way in this story as well. So what drives these women to kind of get more involved, do you think, or what's behind that impetus? of being more involved as the convert or maybe conversion has nothing to do with being involved. I'm curious. Well, I think, um, I mean, I can only really speak to my, my mother's case. And in her case, I think she, she was just, uh, a proactive person. Like she was extremely involved in our, like, uh, town's PTA and was the chair Mm -hmm. of the home and school association. So I think she got a lot of, um, fulfillment out of, being part of communities and um, serving them and having leadership roles. So I think um, for her, it was natural once she converted to like take an active role in the synagogue. But also I think it was, yeah, the excitement of having never really had a religious identity or religious community and suddenly having one. And, and our synagogue was quite small. I'm from a small town in New Jersey that's mm-hmm. called Leonia. That's about a square mile and it's, you know, population of like 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. So we had a, we had a very tiny reform synagogue. Um, and, uh, so it was easy for her to, you know, be a presence there and just use her natural kind of, um, leadership qualities to, to, uh, to play a part, um, Got at the temple. Um, okay. yeah. So I think it just fulfilled her and, and, and was a natural extension of her personality. Cool. And then I guess the question then is, um, in this story, it seems like, uh, in some ways, her, the character's efforts are really appreciated, and yet there's still this underlying kind of current of not understanding how the community is quote unquote supposed to work. Um, Mm -hmm. do you find that true as well in, in life? Like, how do, how do Jewish communities kind of, to you, accept converts or people that seem to be outside? Well, I think in uh, my mom's case, the the community was very accepting of her because, you know, because it was a reformed synagogue, there were many interfaith families and the attitude was generally to embrace outsiders. And um, I, I, I think the the problems that the story talks about are really just the problems of any organization uh, of people you know, in terms of, like, the pettiness of, you know, having to, to pay dues for something or getting behind on your 
payments or whether so-and-so is allowed into this event or that event. And I, I think the story really is kind of about, like, the the divide between, you know, individual faith um, and sort of the, the the meaningful humanistic side of, of religion and and, uh, and then the, you know, sort of just petty human side that inevitably arises in, in any, in any situation, religious or otherwise, you know, so yeah. you have, um, you know, the high holidays, which are deeply meaningful and, and, and you have a, uh, a, a guy who genuinely wants to attend services with his family, but he's fallen on hard times financially. And you have the character based kind of on my mother who's in the middle of it and trying to help him. And then you have this synagogue leadership, this board, which is, you know, kind of frowning upon the guy and and bickering over whether or not to allow him. So it's just, it's really like the, the, the messy, petty human side of things versus yeah. like um, the purity of faith and wanting to help people, I think. Sure. I think I have two questions after that, but they're so different. So let's start with one, which is you mentioned in your answer um, that he did fall on hard times and that he did need those seats and he couldn't afford it. Whereas it seemed to me from the story, it was more amb- ambiguous. Like we didn't know. Yeah. So you're, you think you believe him you, when he asked for the money, you think he, he needs the money. Uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, I, in, in the real life story that this is based on, I think that was a source of ambiguity and, um, no, I think just now I spoke too unambiguously. I think in the story it is intended to be a question of whether sure. this guy is really that hard up and really can't afford a few thousand bucks or if he's kind of just, um, you know, a bit of a hustler and, and, uh, trying to make his situation look worse right. than it is. And I, and I think, you know, um, I don't, I think the, the president of the synagogue in the story and some of the board members, you know, they have a legit, legitimate point, which is that, you know, a synagogue needs its membership and its dues to sustain it. Um, and, you know, with those dues come a privilege to, you know, uh, attend these holidays and, and be there. Um, you know, but then on the other hand, from a certain like far off vantage point, you're like, wait, you have to pay, get a ticket to go, per-, you know, so it's yeah, yeah. like a certain, a certain absurdity to it as well. Um, so the story and I don't really take a position on it. Um, I was just kind of interested in, you know, presenting that because it always, it always, that sort of thing always, uh, amused me my mom's kind of stories of the stuff that the board would argue over right um i mean there was a case once where we had a cantor who like complained because she didn't want to have to um have her own uh have to pour and bring up her own glass of water to the bima before the service like she wanted that to to be done um taken care of for her by someone Mm -hmm. on the board or whatever so it's like just that kind of petty thing like juxtaposed with like the sanctity of religion and faith right. um i just find really interesting do you think that um that jews are different in that way or do you think that's just universal human like not to be maybe border on the 
anti-Semitic trope here a little bit. Right. Talking about how like this guy's trying to get the deal, or um, you know, we want uh, we want to haggle over our our um, contracts and what's necessary and what's required. Do you find that it's different with Jews? Do you think that's just a universal thing? Like everybody's looking for their deals and trying to do the least amount of work or get the most out of something? Like how do you how do you see that as yeah. Jewish or not Jewish at all? Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of the the fun of the story for me was playing at the edge of that stereotype, which of mm-hmm. course I think is a, a an anti-Semitic trope. I mean, I I do not think that Jews are in any way more, you know focused on money or greedy or whatever than any other p- people in the world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those those prejudices and stereotypes do exist. So I thought that, um, you know, telling a story that touches on them, it was kind of, uh, you know, dangerous and interesting. But, um, no, in reality, I don't think that's a particularly Jewish thing. And although I will say that, you know, when I had, when I told Christian friends about, uh, you know, this idea of like high holiday tickets and whatnot, it, it sounds very strange to them. But at the same time, you know, at churches, they have tithing. You know, right. So it's, it, it's not the same as having to, you know, purchase a ticket to go to Easter services or something. But, you know, I mean, every, every, uh, religious organization, as far as I know, needs to collect some sort of income from its worshipers uh in some form or other so uh yeah you know i don't think it's specifically jewish but i but i i was aware of those tropes when i was writing this for sure yeah and i think the next point on that is kind of like um as i don't know if you've been reading there's a lot of articles that have been written right how uh membership to shuls is down and there's a lot of talk about and religious institutions as a whole are down and this story seems to be somewhere in that zeitgeist where where it's talking about kind of what do we owe the community and what does the community owe us? Um, what do you think? Where, where, what do you have an opinion on what might be taken, like what might be owed to a community or how to belong to a community? Like where is that line of what we give to them or what they give to us? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I can only answer for myself mm-hmm. and uh you know, in my case, I'm not, aside from holidays and whatnot, I'm not an actively observant Jew. I'm, uh, you know, I was raised in a reform synagogue. I attended Hebrew school for several years. I was bar mitzvahed. I was confirmed. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as a writer, um, write about Jewish themes and I'm, I'm deeply interested in Jewish history, Jewish culture, uh, I don't um, like. I feel a connection to the synagogue that I grew up in, and and um, you know, still know those people. And uh, you know, I don't like. I don't think I've ever personally um, directly given back to that community. Aside from, I mean, for me, like being the way that I am Jewish, I guess is is artistically or intellectually or culturally um mm-hmm. which uh you know but but from the standpoint of uh um someone concerned with with school membership or with you know the strength and numbers of the jewish community in america like i'm contributing nothing really but i but i would think that uh 
you know, there are different standards. So for me, sure. you know, writing about Jewish themes or keeping a Jewish discourse alive in that sense is a contribution, I would, I would hope. But, um, you know, it, it depends on your, on your viewpoint. I mean, I've gone back, you know, to my, to my hometown synagogue for, uh, for high holidays and, and I've heard, you know, the rabbi who I like and respect a lot, you know, give sermons on this topic of declining, um, declining, uh, Jewish uh, population or population that identifies as Jewish or belongs to synagogues. And I understand that, you know, why that's a real fear to, you know, to feel that you're, that the community is being watered down. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I think everyone has to kind of make their own decision about that, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's always this tension between an individual and how they view things, and then, of course, the community and how they, uh, the community as a whole defines something. Um, and I think that's more apparent. In some ways, we're all very connected, and, and in many ways, because of that connection, let's say, through the internet or other things, it seems people don't need, feel they need that, uh, structure of a, a temple or a synagogue or, you know, a building to show up to. At least that's been my yeah. sense of talking to people and dealing with people in my own, uh, uh, kind of relationship with religion. Yeah, I think that's also true. Yeah, I think that the digital era makes a difference and the and there's just in general, apart from religion even, less of a sense of like physical communities existing. Um which I think because I'm in addition to writing um fiction, I I'm also a playwright and I think right. that that's actually a uh I mean right now in the middle of this uh this virus, it's, it's not the case, but typically, you know, that's a, that's a real unique virtue of theater is that it's, it's still a physical place, a community where, you know, not the same people come every time, but there's a communal experience. And, right. and I think, I mean, I know, I know a lot of theater artists who talk about theater um, you know, as a kind of sacred space or as a, like a church or a synagogue or whatever. So I, I think whatever your particular, um, you know, faith or value system or kind of core interest or focus of your life may be, it is important to have something tangible, a, a place or a forum to go to. And I, and I, and I, I do think that's definitely being eroded these days. Sure. I think also yeah. it, um, people see rules or structures, um, and especially other people enforcing those structures as, as maybe not as good anymore. I mean, a lot of this story deals with how everybody's talking about these other people in the community and, and your stories about how you grew up. And I, I remember the same being at, you know, tables where a, a member of the community was discussed in some sort of way. Um, you know, you're in a community, everybody talks about you, knows your business kind of thing and how, you know, as we get more connected, people actually don't want to be that connected in the sense of having somebody kind of look into your house and saying, what does that guy earn? And what do I know about him? You know, in, in that blunt of a, um, in that manner. And I, I don't know if the institutions are, are kind of allowing for theater, right? Theater, I think one of the benefits of theater is that when you show up with the congregation, quote unquote, you don't worry about who's sitting next to you, you kind of enjoy the show. 
and that and that alleviates that oh I have to see this person again or I have to know what's in their bank account and I have to know what they're giving and what I'm giving you know um, yeah so I wonder about that that kind of an, an anonymity uh, allowing for more uh, quote unquote worship yeah that's an interesting point yeah because when when there's a close knit community that uh, that kind of nosiness and you know um, discussion of others and um, interest in others' lives is kind of inevitable. Um, I think another facet of my story that I was trying to convey is this, this just the small town feeling. You know, I, it's it's a it's a small synagogue in a small town, mm-hmm. and um, you know that was a feature of my small town I grew up in too. That like everybody knew each other's business and. You know, if something happened, everyone instantly knew about it. And, uh, yeah, I think when it comes to religion, it's like, you know, there's an eternal divide between the purity of it, the, the faith side of it, and, and the human side of it, which is going to inevitably be messy, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anytime humans get involved in anything, it's, creates complications and people have their failings and uh um and there's actually there's that term right that uh that hebrew term uh lashon hora yeah yeah talking about others when they're not around speaking ill of others um and i think that's really interesting that that's even a that's that's a concept that's like been been codified as like a bad thing because it's yeah. It's, it's such a human thing. I mean, new. It's really like as a as a as a religious phenomenon in the Jewish community. It's pretty new. I mean, obviously, we've always had the concepts for the last you know thousand for thousands of years. But as like this push, it's, it's actually from what I understand, relatively new in Jewish history. Almost 1800s is when it really starts with the the Chavetz Chaim, you know, or, and his his whole thing is it's it's terrible to speak ill of another Jew. But that's that's a very modern um, invention. I don't really know what the historical significance of that would imply or what was going on that that was kind of his push and it only happens uh relatively recently in our history um and what mm-hmm. that means even but i i don't know yeah i mean we do have that term and and yet the human side of us does seem to have a lot of gossiping ability and we all seem to enjoy that outlet of conversation and yeah so like, i mean i think that right drama is the the sharing of gossip almost yeah, that's a good uh that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think um I mean at least the the kinds of you know, fiction or drama or whatever that I often respond to, um <clears throat> that I think probably most people respond to are the is the is the kind that um you know, it feels like you're eavesdropping on something. Uh something private and compelling and, uh, you know, that you might not want to talk about um, or you might not talk about so easily in, you know, mixed company or whatever. Like there's, it's a, it's a place to deal, to safely deal with more dangerous things. Yeah. It divorces us from what it allows us that uh, divorce from it being us personally to somebody else um, away from, um, so you are a playwright. I know you're known as a playwright. I've seen one of your plays. Um, so why this? Why this in fiction? Why not a play? Um, you know, uh, a few years back, I 
was um, kind of in between things as a playwright, and I wasn't sort of sure what my next steps would be career-wise. And I um, had always been a big reader of fiction and thought I would kind of try my hand at writing some stories. And I and I had an idea for uh, a collection of about a dozen stories that would all focus on the same small town synagogue mm-hmm. community um, stories that I, you know, would have drawn from my own experience or my mother's experience. Um, and so this uh, this came from that. I never ended up pursuing that because I ended up getting busier as a playwright and that kind of became my path, although mm-hmm. fiction is something that I'd love to return to more in the future. But um, in terms of this story in particular, I mean, I think I would have written it I wouldn't have written it as a play because so much of what I wanted to uh, explore was within George's uh, consciousness and his psyche. And, um, you know, I think if this were dramatized as a play, it would sort of just be the outward arguments and not, it would be harder to get at, you know, um, George's inner life. Sure. So, uh, yeah. I mean, she's such a full, yeah. it's clearly her story, right? Some yeah. stories, there's multiple characters or, um, different perspectives. It's, it's very clear that this story is George's story. So I agree to a degree that it would be very hard to capture that in a, in a theater setting. And, the, you know, there'd have to be a lot more probably going on between people than, um, this story might, uh, allow for. Yeah, totally. So what, um, I guess, if we're talking about Georgia as the character. So at the end of the story, she's given away her tickets. Um, and now she's at home and she's very happy to be at home. So I'm curious, what, what solace does she find at the end there? What does she realize or what, what is that transformation that she undergoes at the end where she's happy to be alone? Whereas before it seemed like she wanted to be part of the community involved. Now she's happy to be by herself at home. So what, what, what do you think that transition might be? I think she feels that over the course of the story, she comes to feel that the um, that the community is being uh, kind of petty or narrow-minded about this issue, and she she for for whatever reason um, kind of feels this pure selfless need to help uh, Stuart, the, the guy who who's having trouble paying his uh, his dues, and. I think by the end, by giving up her tickets, um, it's kind of like a sacrificial gesture that in a way reaffirms her own individual faith. Um, mm-hmm. Like she ends up finding her faith, uh, the source of her faith inside herself, maybe, as opposed to within the community, which she at this point, um, maybe feels critical of. Right. Um, so she kind of has to branch out on her own a bit. Right. And, uh, and she takes, she finds like peace in the fact that she's done what she thinks is right. Well, mm-hmm. you know, although the story really, I don't mean for it to take any position on whether she did the right thing or not, or right. whether the community was, in a, was right or wrong, or whether Stuart was even being legitimate in uh, claiming yeah. inability to pay. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a strange thing, right? That we have these concepts where people are supposed to remove themselves from the community for certain reasons, or um, they have exemptions to certain rules, and it, and it very much creates their individual identity and reaffirms, it's supposed to reaffirm uh, their faith. For example, I know like a doctor working on the Sabbath, you know, or um, there's this Hasidic cut in the Gemara that they bring from the Gemara about a bear Lishma doing a bad deed for the right reason and how that uh, works metaphysically. And, you know, there's a lot of this talk about, um, I think, you know, human experience being more messy than just quote unquote doing the right thing. Um, so it's interesting that she finds um, almost a, an affirmation uh, in, in doing the quote unquote wrong thing that commu- the community sees as wrong, let's say. And, but for her, it's right. So it, it makes her feel better. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, there's always that push and pull between the, the collective and the, you know, the rules and regulations and dogma of society or of a religion and one's own individual conscience Mm -hmm. and sense of right and wrong. And it's interesting material, I think, for, storytelling when those two come into uh, conflict. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, how do you be a good a good Jew and do something that is uh, in opposition to your Jewish community? Or how do you, you know, right. be a good citizen and do something? I mean, you know, it's like the idea of civil disobedience, like doing yeah. something that, you you know, is according to your conscience, but flies in the face of society's uh, dictates. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, to me, uh, bringing it back to, like, your playwork and things, I know the play I saw was um, about uh, interfaith relationships, which I found interesting in this in this um, viewpoint where uh, conscience comes up, right? What you want and what the community wants and maybe how those work together or not. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how you see this story now. Now, I know it was written in uh, 2014, so now it's 2020. How do you see these things kind of fitting together? Well, I can see the story um, almost in hindsight. Um, I think the well, the the play you're referring to is kind of a romantic comedy about an interfaith relationship between a, a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman, mm-hmm. and I would say that that um, I think they're they're different in uh, tone and approach. Like I think the story Temple Jews is, um, in my mind, uh, fairly realistic um, look at um, a situation, um, and uh, I I wrote to play the Sabbath girl in, I think, more of a sort of, like, uh, lighthearted, magical, romantic mm-hmm. um, uh, state of mind, although it does, it does you know, attempt to grapple with issues of, uh, of faith with, a, you know, a Jewish man having a, kind of a crisis um, with regard to his community. Um, but ultimately, it's a, it's a love story. So I, I think that the... Like the, the the Sabbath girl ends with these two people taking a tentative step toward a relationship, 
but I really have no idea whether that relationship, sure, you know, in, in reality would work or not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think Temple Dues is more, it's, it's written from a more kind of realistic, uh, standpoint. And the play is more of a, of a romantic, uh, fable. Almost. Sure. Yeah. So I guess it's also interesting in the, um, in the story, there are, it seems to me, two women that come up as, I'm not sure, right? Stuart's wife is, is Min C, right? And. Yeah. yeah. Unclear if she's Jewish or not, right? If she's converted. Or, I, I don't think it's ever talked about in the story. And I thought that was interesting in terms of paralleling Georgia's experience mm-hmm. and how people talk about, uh, her, Min C, but they talk about Georgia differently. I didn't know if, if that was intentional or if it was clear. Maybe I missed something that, uh, there was some sort of conversion or I, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, in the story, Stuart's married to a Korean woman, and um, there isn't really discussion of whether or not she's become Jewish. In my uh, in my mind, she hadn't mm-hmm. um, officially converted, but it was a situation in which um, you know they were raising their their kids. Uh, uh, Jewish, and, and and that was something that that I saw in my Reform synagogue. I, I I would see families, you know, where one parent was Jewish and they were raising the kids Jewish, but the other parent had never actually converted. Which you know, in in the looser world of Reform Judaism, isn't that big a deal. Right. Um, and and that's actually what my parents were doing with me until my mom just took it upon herself to convert. Uh, right. She did that. Interestingly, at without any urging from my dad, he never mm-hmm. asked her to convert, or you know, it was totally of her own volition. Um, so, yeah, that I guess, you know, I suppose only in in Reform or maybe Reconstructionist Judaism would you find that, uh, because I think otherwise you'd expect conversion, right? I think so. I mean, the conservative movement maybe at this point is a little more open, but I'm not sure. I can't say for a fact. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a difference? Do you think it makes a difference to the community? Um, in the sense that people convert or don't convert or, um, that the community itself accepts people more if they convert or not? I, I don't really know what your experience with that is. Well, in, in, in my reform synagogue, the, um, what I saw was just, you know, pretty broad acceptance. I mean, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, it was in New Jersey. It's, it's a, like a liberal democratic, uh, area, you know, um, everyone, you know, it's near New York City. I mean, everyone was just kind of very liberal minded and open. Well, so we had, you know, we had all kinds. I think we probably also had, uh, Maybe not when I was there, but afterwards we might have had some some gay parents and um you know, it was like a, a pretty broad uh sure. collection of people. So yeah, I don't think in I mean I think like the rabbis of my synagogue over the years would have always probably encouraged Sure conversion if the family was deciding to basically be a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it would have been like, 
held over anyone's head if they didn't, or they would have been seen as, you know, right. less part of the community. Um, but I'm sure that differs a lot, you know, by synagogue and, and by denomination. Yeah, I mean, my background is Orthodox. I grew up Orthodox. Um, so, yeah, the situation was, was different <laughs> by us. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, but I want, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a very strange kind of, you try to bring people in, but you don't really want to bring people in and how that, how that all kind of works together. It's very complex and strange. I'm curious. This is, I actually have a question for you. I'm curious, yeah. uh, based on, you know, your having an Orthodox background, how did you find the depiction of Orthodoxy in, the, in, in my play? Um, I found it pretty accurate. Um, actually, I didn't, uh, I'm trying to think now fully. I have to think about it for a second because now I have to remember all the details. I thought, um, actually you found it pretty, pretty true. Um, the only thing which is like a nitpicky thing, I think, would be, yeah. um, the, the dress to, which is like such a, I can't believe I'm saying this now because it feels so, uh, I don't know what the right word is, derogatory towards, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it feels like, but, um, so the, the Jews that you kind of, the way they talked was a little different than the way they dressed, I think would be my only little, um, thought on it. Um, that they were, they talked very modern for the way they were dressed. Right. And so I yeah. was like, oh, I get it. Meaning it has to be that they talk a little more modern. I mean, I get the play. So that would be my only like, oh, that was interesting. But, but overall the depiction of what they were saying felt very, uh, traditional to me. Um, like I didn't, I didn't think it was anything like, oh, that nobody would say that in my community or a community that I'm sort of aware of. Um, I, I thought that was very authentic. So it was just interesting, uh, to see, um, the dress, meaning it, the dress felt a little more religious than the talk, if, if I'm like thinking about it. But the yeah. perspectives shared by the characters and how, how much pushback there would have been and, and the agony over which you would have thought about dating a non-Jew felt authentic to me from that community, you know? Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. I, and I think what you're saying about the dress, that, that makes sense to me because I think um, part of that arose from, like, just my my director and the creative team kind of, mm-hmm. you know, wanting, like, a stronger stage image sure, or difference. Sure. And we so, like, it much, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, giving Seth the seat seat and, you know, um, Rachel's uh, head headscarf and all that, like, yeah. That some of that stuff you might find more often in a in a Hasidic community. Yeah, um, it was just funny because it was um they were talking about Riverdale and it's a community that I know pretty well. I have a lot of friends there. I know the rabbis there, um, etc. And it was just funny hearing that community be referenced. And I was like, oh yeah, I could see this there. And it's so funny because Riverdale itself is like one of the more liberal Orthodox communities. We're talking about modern Orthodox spectra. Like Riverdale is one of the most modern. So it was funny, um, in a, in like a insider baseball kind of way, like, oh, it sounds like them and kind of, it doesn't really look like them, but it kind of sounds like them, you know? Um, yeah. It was agreeable to us having, having some sort of tie to that community. Yeah. I lived in Riverdale for a couple of years. Oh, okay. So cool. I, uh, from like 2011 to 2013. So yeah. I, I, I saw that firsthand all the time. Um, and uh yeah, lived like right around the corner from a um a Jewish uh fish store and you know, I'd see the families all the time. Um, sure. and also I 
another way I've experienced orthodoxy is that uh, I worked for almost six years at the 92nd Street Y. Okay. Um, yeah. And some of my, I mean, obviously that's a, you know, big cultural organization uh, that employs many non-Jews and, um, but, but I, some of my colleagues were orthodox. Um, so I've, you know, worked alongside, uh, orthodox people. Um, and, uh, I guess, um, you know, just from living in New York as well, uh, you know, it's, it's something that even if you're not part of that community, you know, it's, it's all around. So yeah, I, the combination of that and doing some research made me feel okay writing about it in a play, even though I wasn't, you know, necessarily sure. from that. And, and I also have, you know, in my own family lineage, people who have been or were orthodox, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a very, in some ways, it's a very monolithic kind of idea. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's back to what we were talking about, the community versus the individual and how um, certain communities get monikers but then you'll find a very vast array of people within that, that quote unquote community. Um, one, uh, you know, and, and it could be so minute talking about clothing, like some Hasidim, you only tell the difference between them based on how, which sock they're wearing and how they're wearing their socks and what hat they put on and how they tie their belts. And there's like these very, very minute differences by appearance, but the philosophy might be different or the actions might be, it, it's a very strange phenomenon to me to see groups of people and then the individuals within the group and how they make their decisions in that sense. So I thought this story was kind of um, almost each character was almost a different version of a group within a group, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't know. It's, it's a very strange, the story almost feels still, I know it was written six years ago, but I don't, I don't know if things have changed that much in terms of how, how things are run at organizations or not. I don't know. I'm not yeah, a huge organization anymore, I, but I mean, I don't think that they ever really change. At, at least that's that's my perspective. Um, and even, so, my my mother has since uh, has since moved and no longer lives in that town, um, but she's still close friends with people from there, and and occasionally you know, goes back um, for uh, when she's in the area for services or whatnot. And actually a good friend of hers is president of the board now. And so she still hears from him about all their, you know, trials and tribulations. And they recently had a, a big issue with a cantor that they'd hired. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's weird when, you know, you have to do the kinds of things you do when like running a business, but it's, it's religion and faith and um, those two areas of life seem like they're at odds, but they have to coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless you're praying at home, uh, you know, with your family or close friends, but once there's an institution that has to be sustained, then all these things come into play. Um, and I think that's always going to present human dilemmas. Uh, but, you know, that's the cost of, uh, that's the difficulty of community, you know, along with all of its benefits. Sure. I agree. Yeah. Um, so I think on that, I have 
no more questions. I don't know if I missed anything or you want to add anything to the conversation uh, that you um, thought was appropriate. No, I mean, the only thing I would say, you know, just generally is that I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your, your journal and, and, and what you do. And, and, uh, you know, when I was first, um, thinking about writing these stories and, and, uh, wrote this one, um, initially, you know, it was, it was great to see that there's, uh, a home for that and a, and a place that's, you know, promoting, uh, such a broad array of, Jewish themed work because I I wish that were more common but it's not so I'm just just wanted to express my uh, appreciation for the for the journal and the mission and all that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, when this started, I was it started because I couldn't find we couldn't find anything like this and it was it seemed a strange thing, the irony of um, people of the book not having uh, a presence almost literarily online or anywhere really. On a, on a really serious basis and how, how much of our culture seems to revolve around art or expression of self. And, um, it's very interesting. Maybe it's a post Holocaust thing or I don't, I'm not really sure, but it seemed like we lost art, um, as a community for a long time. And, uh, we want it to be a, a little small part of trying to bring that kind of thing back. So that, that was our goal. Still my goal. Yeah. And it's interesting too, cause like there, it seems like there was maybe, like 60, 70 years ago, this big renaissance of American Jewish writers like, you know, Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and Bernard Malamud and all those guys yeah. who kind of like, that was almost like the first time that that minority was getting widespread attention. Mm-hmm. And then, and then all those people kind of became legends. Um, and there really isn't, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, there are obviously still like, individual Jewish authors who write about Jewish things for sure. But um uh, like one person who comes to mind is um Dara Ross. Mm-hmm. Oh no, is that her name? I think so let me see. I don't I'm not sure who you're she she writes she's she's a you know fairly popular novelist who um let me see if I can if that's who I'm thinking of. I mean, there's like, uh, uh, Stefan Foer and there's, there's that whole almost new strain of Jewish writers, although I don't know if they would want that moniker 100%. Oh, Dara, Dara Horn is her name. Dara Horn. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't feel like there's a, like you said, you know, I don't know how many of these authors self-identify as like being Jewish writers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be like a, uh, a community that's grouped together of like, like I, I wish there. Were, I mean, there's like one playwriting organization that that exists that dedicated to uh, developing Jewish themed plays. Um, but yeah, it's nice that it's nice for there to be kind of homes for that. Uh, so um, yeah, it was nice to find the your journal for sure. Well, I'm glad it existed then. Um, yeah, yeah. The only person I'd add to your list from the 20th century, which I always, I'm always curious, which is a completely different conversation we don't have to have now. I always like to add uh, Potok to that list, which I find he gets, oh, left, yeah. he gets left off a lot of lists, um, which I always find very, very interesting um, as to, I don't, not that I'm accusing you of anything, I, but like uh, if you're in a literary class or thing, you know, of course, Roth gets brought up all the time as the Jewish writer. And it's, uh, Potok was a pretty, 
large competitor, a completely different type of writer. I, I always say those, those two are probably the, the exact opposites of each other, but I always, it's always curious. I'm always curious by, um, the list that people come up with, but I agree with you that it's been, I don't think we have those kind of right. We don't really get that voice anymore. Um, which is interesting and, uh, a little sad to me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always get excited when I when I read a, a review of a book that seems very, um, you know, Jew, Jewish centric um, because it is more more rare. Uh, and yeah, you know, I actually I'm, I'm like I've always been a huge Raw fan, but I haven't really. I mean, I know of Potok's work, of course, but I haven't really read him. So I think that's one reason why I. Uh, yeah, he doesn't come to mind for me, but I, but I, but I, I, need, I do need to do that. Um, I think, I think there's also, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, there's also a lot of, you know, of course, like 20th century, uh, Eastern European Jewish yeah. writers, um, and like Soviet era Jewish writers. Sure. There's actually a great series, um, that Philip Roth edited in the seventies called Writers from the Other Europe. Um, and, uh, Several of those writers that he that he published uh, in translation were were Jewish and were writing about you know the Holocaust or post Holocaust or Soviet era, um, and are really interesting to read. Yeah. I'm reading a I'm reading a collection of stories now called uh, This Way to the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, um, which is by a uh, a Polish writer named Tadeusz Borowski who was actually a Polish Catholic, but was in Auschwitz as a Pole and yeah. wrote this incredible collection of uh, stories about, about his experience there. So anyway, that's a tangent, but yeah, tangents are good though. They bring somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find it. Uh, so anyways, we, we were, that's what we kind of wanted to try and get to here. I'm not sure where it's going eventually, but you know, we wanted to have, and I still want to have somewhere for those that kind of writing is possible. I find it yeah, uh, absolutely. very important to our identity and our, our religion and, and the individual and community and all that stuff. Um, and it was cool because the, the story that, um, that you had me record uh, was, you know, a story, a, a, a biblical story, a story mm-hmm. about Isaac and Ishmael. And so as someone who wrote this very contemporary story about infighting at a reformed synagogue, you know, to be reading uh, out loud this biblical story, it just, you know, brought to mind, like, the diversity that, that can exist within, quote-unquote, Jewish fiction, you know. Yeah, um, and then also the universal themes of infighting between Yeah, people. absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all in the Bible, for yeah. sure. Thank you for listening to Exegesis. If you enjoyed what you heard, please comment, rate, subscribe, and share. You can also support the show and the journal by donating through the website, PayPal, and Patreon. Much of what the journal does is possible because of supporters like you. Thank you, and see you next time.